For today, we're going to do, for tonight, we're going to do the very short book of Jude, just one chapter, uh, 25 verses, and uh, Jude is, uh, is, like I said, one of the brothers of Jesus, and so we'll dive into that in a second. But just to start out with, um, I remember when I was uh, growing up, the effects of something called apartheid were being, were still being felt, uh, even in the United States, people protesting and and uh, different things like that. But did you know that apartheid was based on bad theology, bad doctrine? Uh, the system of apartheid in South Africa it was a sophisticated but oppressive structure of racism that reigned for decades. And it was based in large part on the theological doctrines that were formed at the Stellenbosch University in the 1930s and 1940s. Some of you may not have known that. The Afrikaner nationalism and distorted Christian theology that came from Stellenbosch's seminary fueled many Afrikaners' belief that they were God's chosen people. They saw themselves as biologically superior to other races, and therefore they felt called to create a new segregated society that would allow them to civilize other people while not tainting themselves with the quote-unquote darkness and barbarism of those inferior groups. These doctrines gave the white South Africans religious justification for horrific crimes against their countrymen and women. Over three and a half million black, Indian, and biracial people were removed from their homes in what was one of the largest mass removals in modern history. Non-white political representation was obliterated. Black South Africans were denied citizenship and relegated to slums called Bantustans. The government segregated education, medical care, beaches, and other public services with signs like the one you see here, providing black and Indian and other colored people with significantly inferior services. And the result was a segregated society where people were dehumanized based on beliefs that were supported by bad theology. But good old human beings, even though apartheid was done away with, if you've kept up with the news of the past several months, the attempt to correct apartheid resulted in not a correction, but an overcorrection uh, with, uh, with South Africa diving into the other ditch. You may not be able to read it, but it says South Africa to change constitution to legalize taking away white farmers' land. And the first line of that article says South African President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa has said the ruling African National Congress must initiate a parliamentary process to enshrine in the Constitution a proposed amendment paving the way for land grabs without compensation. Literally, it's like, it's like a bum rush eminent domain. And they go in and they, they redistribute the land of these farmers all in the, the name of correction. This is, uh, this is uniquely human uh, a human way of dealing with things. It's not just a correction, it's an overcorrection. It's not just re remedying the oppression and the injustices of the past, but it's doing so by oppressing and, uh, and, uh, and promoting injustice among other groups. And it's a very sad state that we live in. And, and as human beings, we never learn from this. Uh, we, we're, we're in that situation today uh, in our nation with a variety of things that have been in the news this past week. Uh, just oppression begets more oppression for humanity. And it's very sad, very sad state of things that we're in. And the only thing that can remedy that is the truth of God's wise words. Uh, as we've been saying, ideas have consequences. And the story that we just saw about apartheid and then the stories that we've seen over the past several uh, weeks in our own nation is that ideas not only have consequences, but bad ideas have victims. 
And so I would ask you, based on these truths, how important is it to, uh, to make sure that false teachers are not believed? How important is it to, 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 to call out false doctrine when it's proclaimed? This is something we're very uncomfortable with in a politically correct society. Especially in light of what we talked about this morning about uh, the modern day mindset of, you know, you speak your truth, I'll speak my truth, right? This just subjectivism and emotionalism that drives the train of, of, of culture nowadays, it's, it's horrifying. It truly is horrifying. And so ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims, and it is of utmost importance that false teachers be rooted out and, and confronted with... Uh, with what they have been promoting in, 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 a, in a way that's filled with grace and truth. That's the way we avoid the overcorrection, and, and once again, that's still a fine line to walk. But it should cause us to stop and think about that question about false teachers. When we think about, apart from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the first three books that we've dealt with have addressed what? False teaching in the church. And just think about that and what that says about what the church has faced and will continue to face. Even if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is kind of writing his swan song and his final words to the church, false teachers will come up and people will, 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 will basically hire these false teachers to, to scratch their itching ears with truths that they want to hear. And he, he says that these things will mark the end days. In fact, there's a figure that's going to arise in the New Testament that's anti-Christ, which some people identify as a, as a, as a physical person. Other people identify as an ideology. Uh, John would be more on the ideology side, saying the antichrists have already come and gone. They've, they've been around for a long time. And, and so these antichrists are false teachers. They're people who set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that those are, the, those are the people that we must confront with the gospel. We must take captive every thought. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so the large majority of the New Testament that we have remaining will, will address not just false teachers, but will ultimately beg the question from us of how well do you know the truth? How well do you know the truth? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote very specifically and extensively about redemption being accomplished in Christ. In Acts, we saw redemption applied and the early church was born. And then in Galatians and James and now Jude, we are seeing redemption defended. You see, the early church was under attack from the outside, as I mentioned this morning, outside from Rome and the persecution that Rome, uh, Rome brought against the early church, and Judaism sought to decimate the new movement, but they were also attack, uh, being attacked from within as new believers struggle with what to believe. We talked about this morning that Paul defended in Galatians the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, that nobody is saved on their own merit. Nobody is saved uh, through any other means but Christ alone. You can't add anything to Christ without cre uh, creating a, a damnable amalgamation of, of heresy. I think that's the strongest set of words I've ever put together. A damnable amalgamation of heresy. That's what happens when you try to combine Jesus plus anything else. It doesn't work that way. And it still doesn't work that way. And so Paul defends this justification by faith alone and he explains life 
in the Spirit. And then James defended this morning the practical implications of wisdom that has been planted within us. And once again, Jesus would call both of those in John chapter 3 being born again. Where the Spirit is put inside of us, James would say that wisdom is planted inside of us. And and Psalm chapter 1 speaks of those people. That they're like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Basically, what that combine that with Galatians chapter 5, and that against those fruits of the Spirit, there is no law, meaning that, that the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to do wrong, to break God's law. He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. That is life according to the Spirit. My prayer has been, since we've gone through that, that... that that you would make it your priority and your goal to seek out what that, what that is meant to look like in your life, in your workplace, in your family, in your home, in your conversations, in your thoughts, in the motivations of your heart. What does it look like for you to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? And not that, it's gonna, that, that the Spirit's going to gonna uh, uh, look different in you than it does in anybody else. It begins with, like we saw with John 14, 15, 16, and 17, it begins with the truth of God's Word saturating our hearts and minds. Like we'll see in Colossians chapter 3 later on about, about um, let the Word of Christ dwell in you what? Richly, meaning that you prepare a place for Him to dwell that is hospitable and comfortable. That you, that you prepare your heart in such a way that you're surrendered and you're receptive and you're longing for awareness of His movements. And that as the Spirit moves in you as you're abiding in the truth of God's Word, and as the Spirit moves in me as I'm abiding in the truth of God's Word, guess where we're moving? We're moving together in the same direction, fulfilling the will of God as the body of Christ. It's this beautiful picture of the New Testament church that, that Paul calls this mystery that's now made known. He's going to say that in Ephesians. And so what we're, what we're talking about here is not just proof texting. It's not just ripping a verse out of context and saying, this is what the Christian's life, all, life is all about. No, we're saying this is what the New Testament is saying about what it means to walk with Jesus. And this is a core component of discipleship that we need to be teaching our kids, that we need to be, uh, that we need to be uh, learning ourselves and growing in in our own Sunday school classes and our own small groups. And so the wisdom and the spirit that's been put within us is going to bear a certain kind of fruit, a Christ-centered, God-honoring fruit. And tonight we're going to look at the letter of Jesus' other brother, Jude, as he wants to write about that gospel that bears fruit in our lives, but he can't because he sees this urgent need in the church. And can I tell you, I'm once again perplexed, because guess what Jude's name is not? Jude. I really, I mean, I, I like want to sit down with some, some, some New Testament translators which, and, and just be like, why is Jacob's name or James's name translated James when it's Jacob? And why is Jude's name translated Jude when it's plainly Judah? Which makes sense for Jesus's Jewish brother, right? We don't see Jude in the Old Testament. What do we see? We see Judah, the, the, the Lion of Judah. We see Judah as one of the 12 tribes. So, so it's, it's Jacob and Judah as Jesus' brothers. And that name Judah reflects his Jewish heritage. And he writes, like we said, James wrote this morning in the spirit of Solomon from the, from the book of Proverbs. And now Jude writes in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet like Habakkuk. Jude is in the same way writing a letter to this messianic community in the style of an Old Testament minor prophet. 
And his concern, look in verse 3. Uh, if you want to underline a verse, this is, the, this is the main theme verse of Jude. Jude chapter 1, or all of it's chapter 1, but Jude verse 3. Beloved, this is where he reveals his, his initial desire. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so like we mentioned this morning, it's, it's important for us to begin here. This is Jude's focus. This is, this is his reason for writing. We can't ascribe to him any other reason than the reason for which that, that he stated himself. And so Jude says, I wanted to write a more extensive explanation to you about what Jesus has done for us, but I heard about what's going on. I heard about those Judaizers, about those false teachers, just like Paul wrote, warning the Galatians. Jude says, I heard the same thing. I had to write to you because I was fearful that you would believe these things. I'm going to tell you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and a lot of times this is quoted in apologetics conferences and, and in apologetic studies about this is our, uh, this is our, uh, one of the one of the tasks and the commissions that we have in evangelism is giving an apologetic defense for the faith, and you would think that the, that the rest of Jude is about what that looks like. But if you if you treat it this way, which many Christians do, you will be utterly confused because Jude doesn't set out to help you understand what it looks like to contend for the faith. He doesn't give you like a, an outline, a, you know, an evangelism explosion outline or a faith outline or one verse evangelism. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about, about how to defend certain core component doctrines of, of, the, of the gospel. He just doesn't do that. Instead, he writes like an Old Testament prophet where he immediately begins to pronounce condemnation upon the false teachers. And he's warning the church about these false teachers. And this was an urgent situation for him. He, 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 he won, I mean, I think it's, it's just interesting. We don't have his other book, right? We don't have another letter that he wrote where he was explaining the gospel. The Spirit of God decided that this was, this was the book of Jude that needed to make it in here. And so it's, that's why we're looking at it tonight. But he wants to urge us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And now something unique to Jude, and this is why a lot of Christians get thrown off when they, when they approach it as an apologetic how-to or a DIY manual of, of defending the Christian faith, is that Jude quotes from all of these non-canonical or uninspired or apocryphal sources. And so this, just let me, let me help you understand what I'm talking about here. So Jude quotes from something called the Test Testament of Moses. He quotes from something else called uh, the Book of First Enoch. Um, he and, and I'll, I'll reference those a little bit later on. He he quotes um, from several other sources, uh, New Testament sources. He quotes from Peter and John and Paul. He quotes from um, where was one of the other ones? Uh, yeah, he quotes from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and so. He, he quotes from the Old Testament, but he, he refers to these apocryphal sources. Apocryphal just means uh, that they were written after, right? They were, they were written after uh, a certain time period, or they were written in between a certain time period. If you, if you look at a, an old family Bible, you might have one in your house that's about 35 pounds. Uh, you, if, if you ever have an intruder, the family Bible, you could just kill them with that sort of the spirit. I mean, because that thing is so heavy. It's like a, it's like a big anchor. 
And if you, if you thumb through it, most of those big, huge family Bibles like the Johnsons have in, in our, not, not in our home in Abbeville, but in the home I grew up in in Huntsville, uh, it's in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have something called the Apocrypha. Catholic Bibles have the Apocrypha in it. And in certain, uh, in certain cases, those books like First and Second Ezra's and First and Second Maccabees, they record a Jewish history that the Jews themselves didn't consider inspired. And so that's why they, they didn't include in the Old Testament. And the, the church didn't consider them necessary to, to, um, to, to help us understand about Jesus. So they didn't include them in our English Bibles or in our, in our Bibles that we have today. But these apocryphal or non-canonical, which just means they're not in our Bibles, these sources are very, would be very similar to books that we have today at Lifeway. So when Jude quotes from these books, don't think that Jude's trying to... A lot of people look at this and say, well, Jude's trying to tell us that there's other books out there. We need to go, like, once again, Nicolas Cage looking on the back for the declaration for a code, and we need to find some code in the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary or, or the, you know, the, the Catholic Church is trying to, you know, the conspiracy theorists come out, the Catholic Church is trying to hide something from us, and, and, uh, and, and Jesus isn't really Jesus, and I... They, 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 they think that Jude's trying to assert that there are other scriptures when he's not. Who is he writing to? Messianic Jews. And he's appealing to these Messianic Jews in the same way that I would appeal to you and say, well, well didn't you guys read Mere Christianity with C.S. Lewis? Or didn't you guys, you know, we, we read through The Treasure Principle by Andy, Randy Alcorn or Radical by David Platter. And, and, and I, would, I would reference a book that I would think that we all have read. That's all that Jude is doing here. Is he's just trying to appeal to them based on the heritage, the, the sources that they grew up reading. And so don't stumble over the fact that he quotes from these sources as, as some Christians do. But the focus is to call out these false teachers. And so let's look at how he does that, beginning in verse 5. The, these false teachers actually begin in verse 4. These certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And here he goes. Verses 5 through 10, uh, Jude announces that false teachers will incur uh, divine justice. And he highlights three different examples of past rebellious teachers who have done just that. In verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, here's where the first stumbling block is. Who does Jude ascribe the Exodus to? Not to God the Father, but to Jesus. And he does so simply because, for Jude, he is a Trinitarian monotheist. He believes that the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the same person. I mean, the same God in three persons. And so he says Jesus was the one who saved him out of the land. But then afterward, you remember those people that rebelled in Numbers 14? See, they got what they wanted, and they died out in the wilderness. False teachers incur God's judgment. And then in verse 6, he says, And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And everybody, when they're reading through the one-year Bible, they get to this verse and they're like, what does that mean? And they're all, I mean, and, and listen, the, the history 
is just as amazing as that verse would kind of would kind of provoke you to think. So there was this non-scriptural book that I told you about earlier called First Enoch. It's not scripture. It's not. It shouldn't belong in the Bible. But it was just in the Hebrew tradition. And Enoch, if you remember, was Noah's great grandfather. And Genesis chapter five twenty four, Enoch was one of these men who didn't die. Remember, he just God took him up. Right, he walked with God, and then God took him up. Well, the, the first part of the book of Enoch describes the fall of this group of people called the Watchers, which just, make a movie about that. What? <laughs> and it goes back to uh, the angels who fathered the Nephilim. Do you remember this story in the first part of the book of Genesis? Where the, the sons of God or the angels came down and they had these immoral relationships with these human women and there came about this race of people who were kings. Not one of these really odd passages in the book of Genesis that kind of throws us off. Well, there was the book of First Enoch that tried to explain a little bit more about that. And it was actually, they said it was written by Enoch who kind of watched it happen or lived in the after, aftermath of it. And so this, this story in Genesis 6 uh, is is basically saying, do you remember what happened to those sons of God? How they were how they were imprisoned by God until the day where He would judge them. They were he, He's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until this final judgment. And then Jude links that to the third example. Look in verse seven. Just as so he's he's building on that. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So see what happens. Okay, so in the first example, Israel rebelled. Just got normal people rebellion there. In the second, you had angels who came down and had, had improper relations with human women. And then in the third example, you have Jude calling their attention to human men who wanted to have improper relations with angelic beings. And he's saying, don't you guys remember what happened to them? These people, they have been punished with eternal fire. They've been enchained. They, they, God, it says God destroyed them who did not believe. And then in verse 8, uh, he, I mean, in verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams... They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And so both of these stories relate examples about rebellion against God's order that led to sexual immorality. And that's exactly what these false teachers are guilty of. You remember when we read through verse, um, verse 4? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. These people are sexually immoral false teachers. And he gives us a bonus one in verse 9. And this is another, another verse where a lot of people stumble. This is the one from the Testament of Moses. It says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous, a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So there was a creative retelling of the final days of Moses in this book called the Testament of Moses. And basically, as, uh, as Michael, the good angel, comes down to bury the body of Moses... The devil comes and tries to accuse Moses and, and steal his body to make it an idol for Israel. This is what the book's about, the Testament of Moses. And, and Michael, uh, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but just rebuked the devil, and the devil went away, and Michael buried the body, and he left the final judgment to God alone. That's what the story is about. Which, 
I don't know if you're doing it tonight, but I want to tell you, and this is totally off the notes, but um, I really hope you take notes in your Bible. <laughs> Man, it was such a blessing. My, my grandmother, uh, my, my uncle preached from her Bible, and, uh, and, and I took pictures of several pages where it's just, it's just that written, decades-old pen, you know, where you could just tell she was just soaking in the Word of God. And my, my grandmother was like an extremely thrifty person. She would repurpose tons of stuff. And, and you, know, you know what she used for the for tabs and, and bookmarks in her Bible because she didn't have the little ribbon bookmarkers? She used her hearing aid battery stickies. <laughs> and so her Bible's just, it's, like I said, I took a picture of it. It's just filled. She's got tabs all down it with these little hearing aid battery stickies that she used. And, and so for us, for us, when, 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 the, when Satan would want to creep in and just ask that question, was she really a believer? Oh, that Bible is such a testimony to your family. It's, it's incredible. So I hope you take notes in your Bible because it will bless your family one day when you're dead. And that may, may be morbid to some of you, but I'm sorry. Um, but so that's the Testament of Moses, First Enoch. Jude says these false teachers are going to incur divine justice. So he says in verse 11, why would you want to follow them? Look at verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Just, just not to go into too great a detail, but he gave three examples of how they would incur judgment. Now he gives these three examples of how those who, who are false teachers, how they, how they corrupt people who indulge in their message. Cain killed his brother and created a city where violence reigned. Balaam couldn't curse the Israelites, so he corrupted them and led them into idolatry. And Korah, the Levite, led a rebellion against Moses that ended in disaster for him and for all the others around him. And verse 12 is full of these Old Testament references that all point to false teachers' self-centeredness, which betrays their claim to follow Jesus. These, teachers, these, these false teachers, it's one, of the, one of the main ways that you identify false teachers is, is that they create chaos wherever they go. They create chaos wherever they go. They're, they're all about upsetting settled believers not in their settled routine phariseeism but just in their in their doctrinal assurances and he tells them that judgment is coming and so look in verse 14 he quotes again an ancient warning from first enoch he says it was also said about these that enoch the seventh from adam prophesied saying behold the lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I think he's wanting to highlight what? Ungodliness there. That these ungodly people are going to experience the wrath of God. And he warns them that judgment's coming. Don't follow these false teachers. And then in verse 16, he says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know, another way that you, that you notice a false teacher is by their lifestyle. Jude kind of refers back to his brother Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, where he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You, are, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he gives, in verses 17 through 19, he quotes Peter. And... He 
gives them a recent warning. He quotes Peter and he quotes John and he quotes Paul. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he's going to say some more things there. He's going to tell us our responsibility. So here's just in summary of his message thus far and almost to the conclusion. He's warning them against following false teachers because false teachers want to bring you down with them. And he's saying you'll know them by their lifestyle. You'll know them by their fruits. They're devoid of the spirit. They're worldly. They cause divisions. They create chaos. They, they pervert God's design and marriage and sexuality. And so what are you supposed to do with all of these false teachers swirling around you? What are you supposed to do, First Baptist Abbeville, that when you, whenever you go into a, a Christian bookstore or Books a Million and look at, you look in the religious section and you, you, you wonder, well, can I trust that guy? Or can I read that woman? Is, is, uh, you know, are, are, is it truth? Here's the sad thing. I'm not sure many people are asking that question. And Jude would say that's a really dangerous place to be. What were the Bereans commended for? They were commended for not taking, you know, for taking Paul at face value and going and making sure what he said measured up to what God had said in the Old Testament. I, I wish more Christians would ask whether it comes from a knock on the door and, and somebody wanting to give you literature that's in your neighborhood for the day or if it's you walking through a Christian bookstore or just the bookstore looking for a, something to read. I wish that we would ask the question more. How does it line up with the Word of God? Is it true and so what responsibility do we have? Obviously, we need to watch against false teachers, but look in verse, verse 20. He said, first of all, that we're called to build ourselves up. If you want to protect you and your family from false teachers, immerse them in the truth of God's word. This is, this is where I, I wish... I wish that I could just have an audience with every parent in our community and say, do you realize that whatever you immerse your kids in, just like the tongue sets the trajectory of a person's life, that what you consume with your eyes and ears is the path that you're going to walk on? How do you build yourselves up? Well, you use the raw materials that God has given us in His Word. Romans chapter 12, the Spirit of God is at work inside of us to, to transform us, right? Uh, you've heard it from me before. The Holy Spirit's like a general contractor, and He will build victory and transformation and sanctification into your mind as you, as you store God's Word in your heart. What does Psalm 119 say? Psalm 119 say, I have stored your Word in my heart so that I might not, what? Sin against you. Is that really possible? Absolutely it's possible. Holiness is possible if you submissively consume the truth of God's Word. If you abide in the truth of God's Word, the Holy Spirit builds that victory and that Christ-likeness and that godliness into you. And you begin to see the fruits of His work in your life. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that if you give Him wood and stubble and hay, He can't build anything with that. You, you can't, if you just give him fluff and sentiment and emotion 
to deal with, to build with. The Spirit of God cannot build with that. He will not build with that because that does not exalt Christ, it exalts self. But if we build ourselves up with the truth of God, God's Word and He adds to that and pray in the Holy Spirit, then we will be built into the temple that God designed for us to be. And he says, keep yourselves, verse 21, in the love of God. Meaning you need to fix your eyes upon the love of God. You need to soak in the love of God. You need to meditate upon the, the love of God and just think about the fact that every day His mercies are new, that God loves you today as much as He ever has. And what does that mean for my life? What has He done? Preach the gospel to yourself about the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and that God showed His own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean, and how should that change your life? You, need to, you don't need, need to think that you've moved on, that you've grown, from, grown beyond that question in your life. That question should be asked in every season of your Christian life. And as you soak in the love of God, then you will, then you will overflow the mercy of God. As you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life to appear. And you need to be active. Look at verse 22 before we get there. It says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Snatch them out. Overflow mercy and preach the gospel. And by preaching the gospel, snatch them out of the fire. Let that love build a bridge to the person that you are trying to reach. Pray for them in the Spirit and share the truth with them when you see an open door. Be active in sharing your hope. And here's the source of it all, his doxology, his benediction in verse 24. Incredible benediction. I, I would encourage you to, to memorize this and to be able to speak it at a moment's notice to somebody in a hospital visit or in a, in a, in a tough time. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What do false teachers want you to do? To stumble. But who sustains you? It's not your own strength like Philip prayed this morning. It's, it's him. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. And now and forever, amen. I want to pray like that. I don't know, is, that what you, is, that, is that what you come away with you, when you read that? I, I want, I want the, the adjectives and the verbs of God to be so filled up, uh, filling up my mind that what comes out of me is that kind of blessing and benediction. And that's how Jude ends his, his letter. So how do we identify false teachers in summary? According to Jude, their lifestyle and their teaching betrays them. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 says, by, the, by their fruits you will know them. But just really quickly, I'll give you these last few traits. First of all, to watch... Uh, I, I'm sorry, that's, uh, we talked through those. Uh, traits of a false teacher. All of these begin with different, uh, with the hopes of, of you remembering them. They have a different authority. They don't root themselves in the Bible. They have a different message. They don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or they preach a nuanced gospel that subtly denies the authority of Christ. They have a different position. They don't, 
they don't, they don't want to leave you in a spirit of freedom in the spirit. They want to enslave you to some kind of law adding to the gospel of Christ. They have a different character. What kind of people does the message produce? Is it spirit-filled or prideful? Is it greedy or is it sacrificial? Is it submissive or is it rebellious? They have a different appeal. Why should you listen to this message? Is it because God has spoken or because people want to hear it? They have a different fruit. What, is the message, what result does the message have in people's lives? Are they experiencing transformation through Christ or is it powerless to bring victory? Do they have a different end? Where does the message ultimately lead you? Does it lead you to Jesus and faith in Him or does it lead you elsewhere? Just two examples of this. We, we could go for the, for the low-hanging fruit of Mormonism or, or Jehovah's Witnesses. We've talked about those before. But, but one that, is, um, that is, is becoming more prominent in evangelicalism, especially among um, uh, neo-Orthodox evangelicals, and then one that you could go find up until maybe several months ago in, in a local Christian bookstore. The first one is the idea of Gnosticism. We're going to hear Gnosticism being brought back. Uh, I mean, Gnosticism in the, in the letters of John later on. Gnosticism is the idea that you have a, a secret knowledge that you've discovered. Gnosis is the, is the Greek word for knowledge. And to be a Gnostic means that you can know things about reality or about yourself that nobody else can know or see. It may not be tangible but they connect you to a higher spiritual power. When you hear this, you need to think about the, the neo-Orthodox evangelicals who are buying into the false ideology of, of the LGBTQ movement. Of how do, I, how do I know what I am when it comes to my sexual orientation or my gender identity? Well, I just know, and you need to trust me. That's Gnosticism. Old Gnosticism in a new form. That's all that is. You, you can't tell... It's not, even, it's not even rooted in my physical characteristics. I just identify as this or that. That, that didn't work for uh, Rachel uh, Delazenal when she tried to identify as African American as the head of an NAACP group. She, she said, well, I self-identify as African American. And they said, that's not a real thing. And yet, they want to claim moral authority when, when they turn around and, and, and claim that same ideology, even in Christian circles, for the transgender gender movement. And, and folks, that's, that's here. It's not out there. It's, it's in our community. It's, it's very present. We need to be recognizing and calling these things for what they are. It's all based in the speak your truth ideology. When we, when we deny and throw out objective truth, then we will fall into the pit of subjectivism and truth is lost. But then, I, I know we've mentioned it um, before, but the, the book The Shack. Uh, William P. Young wrote the book The Shack in order to explain the Trinity to his kids and uh, trying to help people who grieve. And it seemed at, at first glance that maybe that was not a bad motivation. Even though the book itself, it had some kind of alarming, alarming characteristics of, of the identity of Jesus. And I've heard, I've heard people talk about it that it ministers to. And, and I, I haven't really spoken out against it. I've reserved to say anything just because I knew it, it was one of those things that was working in people's lives. And, and, uh, but what ultimately came out is William Young wrote another book 
not a companion to the shack, but building upon the fame of the shack. And do you know what he called it? He called it lies we believe about God. And the sad thing is, is that he just goes down the list and proves himself to be a false teacher. Well, if he's a false teacher in that book, and, and don't believe me, go be a Berean and check for yourself, but if, if he's a false teacher in that book, should you read the shack? Be really careful with that. And, and, there, and there's others that we could talk about, but is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Does it align with the gospel? Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Bad theologies send people to hell in every generation. And Jude wants us to be on guard against it. And so may, be, may we be people who know the truth and guard the truth and declare the truth and overflow the love of God into the lives of people who need to hear the truth and know the truth. And may that be the way that we fulfill the Great Commission in our day.